consent really is like this dynamic feedback loop that two people are entering on equal footing and figuring out like, what the heck do we want to create? Like, what are we each available for and interested in? What a beautiful reframe about consent. Consent is more than just asking somebody if they want to have sex. It's getting clear on what it is that you want and are available for and having a conversation about that with the other person that you're going to have sex with so that you can co-create something exciting and safe and fun. My guest today is Dr. Alexandra Solomon. You might remember her from an episode that we recorded last year about her book, Loving Bravely. This time she's back and we're talking about her new book, Taking Sexy Back, how to own your sexuality and create the relationships you want. We explored this idea that trust, self-compassion, and risk are all required to create exciting and new sexual experiences. She calls it the risk-trust-self-compassion triangle. And we talk about the power of saying what is so hard to say, especially when it comes to sex. We also talk about desire discrepancy and how it's one of the most prevalent issues that couples talk to therapists about and how it's perfectly normal. Desire decreases with longevity in a relationship. And so we explore how to get curious around inviting it back. If you need a boost of confidence around your sex life and you want more practices that will lead to great sex, then this episode is it. By the way, for the rest of this month and all of February, I'm going to be focusing on sex. And to commemorate that, I am hosting the Intro to Great Sex Workshop, inviting intimacy back into your bedroom. We're going to talk about identifying your desires, how to talk about sex, how to co-create exciting lovemaking sessions, and how to get out of your head and into your body. Early bird pricing for the workshop is $95 until January 31st and $125 after that. If you want to learn more about this workshop, go to thelovedrive.com forward slash great sex. The workshop starts on February 6th and it'll be recorded. So no matter when you listen to this or if you can't make the start date, don't worry, go to thelovedrive.com forward slash great sex and the workshop will be available to you whenever you are ready for it. My name is Sean Galamas and this is The Love Drive. Fine, good. Okay, sounds good. You ready? Mm-hmm. Okay. Dr. Alexander mm-hmm. Solomon. Could you please introduce yourself? Sure. Hi, Sean. It's good to be back with you. I'm Dr. Alexandra Solomon. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, and I'm on faculty at Northwestern University, and I write books about love and sex and intimacy. I'm really glad that you're back. I'm really glad to be back. Yeah. The the last time we spoke, we spoke about your book, Loving Bravely. And that episode is actually one of the top three episodes ever been, like top three most downloaded episodes of my podcast. That's wonderful. I love that. Yeah. And it's it's no wonder, right? Because love is hard. <laughs> <laughs> love is hard. Love is hard. Yeah. And it requires courage. Mm-hmm. It really does re- require bravery. And um, I'm really glad that you are following that book up with this new book taking sexy back Mm -hmm. because yeah sex is sex is hard too (laughs) 
I was going to say, talk about courage. Writing a book about sex is, <laughs> I don't, I don't think I realized just how much courage it was all going to take, but it took a lot. What came up for you when you were writing it? Gosh, I'll, you know, when we, when we talk especially about women's sexuality, I'm just very aware of these splits that we make. You know, we, we even had like sort of a fancy term for that sort of Madonna whore dichotomy, right? Um, lady in the streets, freak in the bed, like this idea that you have to be either this or this. And, um, and so I just was really confronted about all the ways that I have done that within myself, you know, of saying, if I'm this, then I can't be that. And so the first, you know, the first one was really like, if I'm a couples therapist, I can't write about sex. Or if I'm an academic, I can't write about sex in this really kind of intimate, close, way that I ought to be able to, I ought to write about it as this topic that has um, has more head than heart. So I was really kind of confronted by all of the, all the sort of either ors I found within myself that I think we all find within our sexual selves, these contradictions that are basically begging for integration. I mean, if I'm a mother, I can't write this book. If I'm not, you know, having this like really wild, crazy sex life, I can't write this book. All these sorts of ones, you know, about the, um, all of that. Yeah. How did, how did writing this book affect your sex life? Oh, we're going to go right there. Hey, I mean, I, <laughs> I'm just curious if, if it did, I mean, I, I have to imagine that, that it had some beneficial effects. Um, and you could talk about it with more head than heart if you want. <laughs> that's just... right. That's right. No, I, I definitely found this book permission giving for me and for my partner and I, and I think that it invited us to have conversations that maybe had been hard for us. The book is this journey through all these kinds of realms, and basically the work is to find where are you constrained and how might you establish flow. And so I think that as I bumped up against areas of constraint around self-criticism, self-consciousness, judgment, um, I invited myself into a space of more flow, which then, of course, invites my partner into a space of more flow. And so he... Um, it was, yeah, it was fun. I think that it was, I think that's, I mean, my partner and I, my husband and I have been, you know, partners for 20 plus years. And so that is certainly, there's, I think that based on where we are developmentally and in terms of our relationship status, our sexual self is evolving. And so I, what I know to be true about cultivating a sexual relationship with one person over many, many, many years is it is really a cultivation and it's, and, um, and when we bring awareness, we really, you know, we never make the same love twice, you know, no, no two partners ever make the same love twice if they're willing to bring imagination and that self-awareness piece. Curiosity and exploration and a uh, willingness to move away from the traditional script mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that, that many people fall into. I mean, people fall into ruts, sexual ruts. I mean, all sorts of ruts, right? This is this has worked in the past, and so this will continue to work. Right, right. Especially if the topic feels too scary to talk about, then what a couple's sex life becomes are the sort of the, the low anxiety acts, the low anxiety range, the low anxiety setting, um, because it just, it's sort of the path of least resistance. And <laughs> this feels a little weird to say, but 
introducing a little bit of anxiety, a little bit of newness, will lead to more exciting sex. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it doesn't, I mean, and what that looks like, my gosh, what that looks like really is kind of infinite, isn't it? Because what might create a bit of anxiety within me one day may not a different day. Um, and what might, you know, spike my anxiety might not spike your anxiety, you know? So there's not, I think we often think that it means like toys or new positions, but it may just be something much more subtle than that, you know, like whatever, busting through this belief that we have to make love at night or we have to make love um, in our, you know, in our bed or whatever those, whatever those, or I can't open my eyes or I can't make noise or I can't, whatever those pieces are that we're bumping into to imagine something else invites anxiety, which certainly, you know, like it needs to be in a sweet spot, right? We don't want to put ourselves in a space of actual fear because that's like antithetical to arousal. One of my favorite things that that um, we did in the book was this um, try, you know, this sort of sacred triangle, sacred trio of these elements that create really delicious sexual experiences, which is trust, risk, and self compassion. And I really like inviting people to imagine how those pieces flow together. You know that if we're going to take a risk, there needs to be both trust in the space between partners. And then self-compassion because the risk may totally, you know, be a flop or feel embarrassing. And so there needs to be self-compassion also that like, I got you, babe, you know, meaning each of us saying that to ourselves, like I've got you. And it was worthy. You are, you are worthy of taking a risk and you are worthy regardless of the outcome of that risk, whether you like it, whether your partner likes it, whether nobody likes it, whether it's ridiculous, you're worthy of just taking the risk. I feel like you had those three elements when you did the naked handstand. (laughs) (laughs) Can I tell you how much time I spent debating whether or not that was going to go into this freaking book? The amount of time, like the number of times my friends had to hear me break this thing down. That was that was really confronting for me. I think it was beautiful. I'm glad you put it in the book. It scares the crap out of me. I put it in because I couldn't I couldn't figure out another way into this idea of the role of self-compassion, the role of trust, the role of risk. And every time I would take it out, I would get pissed because I'd be like, you, you know, I would just sort of feel like the world is silencing me and why can't we talk? You know, we t- I think that there is there are ways that clinicians are taking a lot of courageous steps around sharing parts of their traumas and parts of their struggles and parts of their pain. And so I wonder what it's like for clinicians to also take the risk of sharing some of their joys. And and when those joys relate to sexual joys, you know, how might the world expand to be able to hold that that truth of mine? Well, it's a it's a bit of a deviation from the from the tradition, right? Where clinicians aren't supposed to talk about their personal life mm-hmm. and have that sort of professional distance. And it also sounds like you you took the the triangle and applied it to this situation. Mm-hmm. Exactly. The risk, trust, self compassion triangle. I feel like applies to life. We can apply it to life. Yes, that's right. That's right. the The real premise of this book is that I don't know how much. 
um, really gentle attention we bring to our sexual selves. You know, I think we often think of sex as a behavior. We either are doing it, not doing it. We're getting some, we're not getting some. We are having orgasms, we're not having orgasms. We're keeping our erections, we're losing our erections. Like we get very sort of binary about it. And sex is a behavior. It's a set of behaviors, but it's also this like massive portal into really profound questions about who are we and who do we want to be. And um, as you well know, right, I mean, this is the work that you've been immersed in for years as well. I, w- I wonder if, yeah, how that struck you in terms of your own, like your, your work and your history and your growing edges. I related to a lot of different dynamics in the book. Some of the stuff that I'm working on is this idea that, actually, Fred Rogers said this, that everything mentionable is manageable. Mm, I love that so much. And for you, it was in the book, it was name it to tame it. Mm-hmm. And I've been experiencing some fear and some anxiety in my relationship around fear of the future, fear of us being together, the, you know, this, this stuff that's not based in the present. And I can apply that to sexuality as well. We have a really healthy sex life and that's full of uh, creativity and exploration and and kindness and self-compassion and also a lot of patience. Like we go really, really slow in everything we do. Mm. And still, name it to tame it, if there's something that I'm uncomfortable with, I'm going to find the courage to bring it up. And oftentimes that just takes the wind out of the sail in a good way. You know, usually people use that expression in a bad way, but it just like deflates the anxiety balloon because I've named it, right? I've, I've, I've put words to this thing that I'm feeling. And oftentimes my partner will, will care for me Mm -hmm. and will tend to my anxiety or my fear or whatever is coming up. And so that was sort of a theme that, that came up for me in the book was really having to learn to bring up sex, like talk about sex, talk about mm-hmm. how you want it to be better, talk about how it's challenging you or how you're struggling with it or or how you were raised, like what you know about sex and how you were taught sex, which most people weren't taught sex. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it's really about like, finding the courage to talk about things that we don't talk about. And this book does a great job. You know, I think this book is a great, um, it could be a starting point for people to explore sexuality with themselves and then also in partnership. Yes. Yeah. Boy, I, I'm struck by how often when I'm afraid to put something into voice, whether it's about sex or anything, it, it just, it feels so convincing. You know, it feels so convincing inside of me that this really can't be spoken or this shouldn't be spoken, spoken, or if I speak it, somebody will judge me like that. Just, it begins to, it feels so very convincing, you know, when it's inside of me. I and mean, that's what, that's what shame does, right? Shame tells us like, that this can't be spoken. And then it is, um, it's so healing when we say the thing that feels hard to say and it's met in that spit in a really receptive space. And it is, it does deepen connection. It was why I wanted one of the things that we did really intentionally in the book was we wrote a chapter at the end that is for men, <clears throat> for men who love women who are taking their sexy back. And, um, and there's not, you know, this the the book is definitely centered on female sexuality, a bit more than male sexuality. But I think that male readers would find themes that really resonate. I have um actually a, a gay male graduate student. I've had a number of gay male graduate students as I've worked on this book who have all 
said that right their you know their bodies are different and how their where their eros goes is different but the themes as you're you know as we're talking about here about shame and self-compassion and the stories we've internalized you know those are universal but because that heterosexual script is just so narrow and so limiting we did talk a lot in the book about gender and gender roles and how they really constrict possibilities and so I was imagining, you know, women who have either male allies or male lovers. And if, if she's stepping into a bit more expansion and flow and, you know, connection to herself, I really want her partner to understand that. And I think so often what we, what our world teaches boys and men is that they're in charge of fixing stuff. And if something is wrong, it's their fault. And if something needs to be fixed, it's their responsibility. And so I really wanted to offer like tools and perspectives to men who are, you know, potential or partnered with these women readers or just, you know, supporting them in whatever way to kind of um, be able to hold space for this work and know that they didn't cause um, their partners, you know, constraints around sexuality. But my gosh, they've got the opportunity to be present to a new kind of unfolding. I can't count, or I guess I, I can count on my one hand the amount of times that I have tried to fix something in my relationship or in in my lady's life. Yeah, it's just not my job. Hmm. Did you always know that, or did you have to learn that? Um. No, I had to learn that. Mm-hmm. I had to learn that. I think I learned it. I think I learned it fairly early on. For me, it was, I realized that that's their work, not my work. Mm-hmm. My work is to not fix things and my work is to hold space. And that my work is to sit with uncomfortable emotions, whether my own or somebody else's. And it's to, my work is to witness people and to support them, but not to take their pain away or mm-hmm. to solve their problems unless they say, hey, can you help me with this? Yep. And it rarely happens. You know, she rarely says, can you help me with this? Yeah. She's far more likely to just crave your presence. That's what she wants. And and mm-hmm. I think we can we can apply that to sex as well. There's no need to fix anything, but presence really does change the name of the game. Mm-hmm. Yep. What are we, you know, are we present for this new awareness around sensations, around pleasure, mm-hmm. around what feels good? I think at the very beginning of the book, you might have started with something, um, if women can't say yes, then they can't say no either. Mm-hmm. And I have been to these cuddle parties in Montreal where there's there's a piece, and there's an introduction about consent and how important it is to say no. And the way they frame it is that if, if I can't trust your no, then I can't trust your yes. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. And to me, that just signifies the importance of going inside and figuring out what do I want? Mm-hmm. What do I what do I want? What do I desire? What feels good to me? And f- to me, I, I just imagine that that's, this is where the journey starts in taking your sexy back. Right. It's a real struggle I have with how we as a culture are talking about consent, and I I understand why we're doing it this way. But you know, the ways that we talk about consent, especially when we're talking about consent between male and female partners really reinforces that 
it's that what he's want what he's wanting to do when he enters a sexual space is get as much as he can or go as far as he can. And when that's the message, you know, around like make sure you're getting her yes, it's still languaged in transaction and it still positions her as having no more agency than the management of the boundary. And so if her, if all she's present to is managing a boundary, then she doesn't have the space or the capacity or the bandwidth to really, as you're saying, like check in and imagine what do I want to like co-create with this person, right? So that's just where I want us to end up with our conversations about consent. Consent really is like this dynamic feedback loop that that two people are entering on equal footing and figuring out like, what the heck do we want to create? Like, what are we each available for and interested in? I think that's a question that um, I don't know that we, we don't certainly don't teach our boys and our men to kind of wonder about that. Like, how would you know what you're ready for? How, you know, I think that the message is, is your sexuality is you're ready all the time. And, you know, if anything, you have to slow yourself down. But I don't know that that's the essential truth for um, for all boys and men, but we certainly do reinforce that their job is to manage themselves, and that girls' job is is to just like slow him down, and it mm-hmm. just like it limits the possibilities for people to kind of just follow their like follow sensation, follow curiosity, and have a deep sense of like we are entering this on equal, you know, on equal terms. There's a practice that I sometimes employ called desires, fears, and boundaries. Mm. You can play this anytime you want with anybody uh, around anything, but particularly with sex. Um, It could even be before you even have sex with a new partner, or it could be in your relationship of 20 years, which is you share with with the person what your desires are for this session, whatever that session might be, what your fears are and what your boundaries are. And then the other person takes their turn right and it's not a it's at the beginning it's not a conversation it's just a one-way sharing of these are my desires my fears and my boundaries Uh, my desire is that we give each other erotic massages tonight my fear is that it will lead to intercourse and that's not what i want Mm -hmm. and the boundary is uh, i don't want any intercourse and also don't touch my butthole Mm -hmm. and then the other person can be can say oh my desire was to have was to have penetrative sex my fear is that I'm not good at giving erotic massages. And so I don't really know what I'm doing and I don't have any boundaries. And then from that point on, you can co-create something that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's more information than, than we ever normally get before a sexual encounter. Yep. Yep. I love that practice. It's beautiful. And in order to be able to do that, right, it is both people checking in with themselves. And and just that process of like, I'm going to watch you check in with yourself. You're going to watch me check in with myself. It just flips the script on this whole, whatever, you know, old school patriarchal, like duty, obligation, performance. Um, and it just invites a really different entry point. Yeah. The whole performance thing. It's a lot of pressure. Yeah. It's a lot of pressure that doesn't need to be there. And pressure is is a brake pedal for arousal. Mm-hmm. No one wants to feel pressure. I don't want to feel pressure that I have to perform and I have to give my partner orgasms. She doesn't want to have to feel pressure that she has to orgasm in order to validate my manliness. Mm. And and it's just like, let's get rid of the pressure and 
and the expectations that the orgasm has to come and that, that the orgasm means that it's sexual, you know, successful sex. Mm-hmm. I think I read I read that in your book that successful sex doesn't end with an orgasm. That's right. It doesn't have to. There's mm-hmm. right. It, it doesn't. It doesn't have to. And that can be. I think we do. Yeah, as you're saying, we like we really conflate orgasm and success. We conflate orgasm and pleasure because there certainly can be orgasms without pleasure, and there can be like tons of pleasure without orgasm. You know, one of the things that I did obviously in writing the book was just review a ton of research, and it's it's totally understandable and totally troubling the ubiquity of women faking orgasms, especially with male partners. Um, and it's not just women, men fake orgasms as well, but but that's a pretty ubiquitous phenomenon of women faking orgasms. And it just makes total sense. And it reflects kind of where we are. And it, um, I'd like us to kind of identify it as not anything that's like shameful, but something that just is an in, a data point around if a woman is faking orgasms, it's a data point. And what, like what might be her growing edge around sharing a bit more depth with her partner and inviting the two of them into a different um, set of possibilities for how they might experience each other. Yeah, the edge might be communicating that this type of vigorous sex doesn't feel good and it's not going to lead to an orgasm. And that's Mm -hmm. hard to say, right? It's like what you're doing isn't pleasurable, which is really hard to say. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Most or all of our sex education has come from pornography, which is certainly, you know, the data shows that that is because sex ed in America especially is so like horrifically paltry. Those are, I mean, you know, teens and young adults are seeking information via porn and being influenced by that. So it makes sense that like that would be, that's what, that's what it seems like sex looks like is a lot of vigorous thrusting. And so then I think for if a woman isn't enjoying that, she may feel like, what the hell's wrong with me if I'm not enjoying this? And so I ought to act like I do enjoy it because it's what I've seen as it's what's been modeled for me as good sex or the right kind of sex. In my experience, slow is better. I'm just going to throw mm-hmm. that out there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And and that maybe, I mean, maybe for a woman, penetration is the thing that absolutely feels best and is her, you know, her most... Uh, reliable pathway to orgasm, but maybe not, maybe not. And so then what are the constraints around inviting in more oral sex and more manual touch or something that really is more the focus on the clitoris than um, vagina? And I just had a question recently about a woman who really enjoys receiving oral sex, but um, feels like her male partner doesn't love it. Like he will do it, but he doesn't love it. And then when she's aware that it sort of is obligatory, then she can't enjoy it. And da, da, da. And one of the things that I was wondering about is what his stories are that he's internalized about what it means to be a man going down on a woman. And are there ways that sort of the masculine training he's gotten, you know, makes that seem like uh, an act of whatever submission or what his stories are about that, or even just as simple as, when you think about the nastiest names you can call a man, right? They oftentimes are female genitalia. You mm. call him a pussy. You call him a cunt. Like these are words for women's bodies. And so the fact that he may have, you know, developed some contempt for female genitalia is not a surprise in a patriarchal culture. And so he may need to do some work around shedding that, shedding his stories in order to really open up a new possibility for what that 
act feels like for him and does for him and opens up for him. I just got emotional thinking about this idea that there's something wrong with being submissive to a woman. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's like one of the most beautiful things there is. Mm. Yeah. What's wrong with that? I mean, what yeah. what is wrong with like bowing down to the feminine and and taking care and holding space and respecting and loving and fully being present for? Yeah. Yep. Yep. I would imagine that most men would really, really, if they allowed themselves, would really deeply love that. And it's so for, but it needs to be him relishing that privilege and her being able to receive that honor. Mm. Right. And so it's also her reclamation of like, oh my God, this part of my body is beautiful and powerful and gentle and whatever and worthy of really close care and attention. Yeah. And that's that's some shedding, right? Because it's not what we're it's not oftentimes what we're taught about our genitals. And not only is my is my my pussy worthy of, I am worthy of. Mm, beautiful. I my whole being is worthy of this person's love and attention. Yeah. Yep. You know, as we have this conversation, I I think about how my work as a couples therapist, you know, and how we were talking about splits earlier and how my field is sort of split between the couples therapist and the sex therapist. And I adore, I'm so grateful for the sex therapist that I'm able to refer to and connect with and learn from. And I'm really aware that I think that in some ways couples therapists have maybe, I don't know, limited their own ability to learn about sex or feel authorized or entitled to talk about sex because it feels like it's maybe not for them or you know the sex therapists are the ones that talk about sex and i think that these kind of these conversations are really important for couples therapists to be willing and able to have with the couples who come in to see them because even if the presenting problem that they're coming in for isn't a sexual one very often there's been a lot of um just erotic neglect or ways in which relationship dynamics are affecting them in the bedroom, or at least ways that if erotic connection was restored, it would just add a bit of cushion to help them face the rest of the problems they're having. You know, it could become an asset, like some money in the in the bank, so to speak. I'm so glad you brought this up because that's sort of where I was headed. You know, you wrote in your book that sex matters between couples, that it it contributes to 15 or 20% of a, of relational satisfaction when it's good. But when it's conflictual, dysfunctional, or non-existent, it plays a disproportionately large role in draining the relationship of its vitality and intimacy. And so how could a couple's therapist not focus on an activity and a way of, of connecting that, that does really impact the health of a relationship? Mm-hmm. I mean, how could you in good conscience not look at a couple's sex life? Right. Because therapists grew up in the same gnarly stew that everybody grew up in oh. where that to ask about you you don't talk about sex religion and politics because <laughs> they're humans <laughs> nice people right that's right that's right nice people don't ask about other people's sex lives so that is right so when i'm training couples therapists you know i'm always we're talking about how right off the bat i want couples therapists to be asking their couples about 
sexual connection, touch, play, all of that stuff early on, because if nothing else, it just models that we can talk about that in here. As, as Fred Rogers would say, it is mentionable and therefore it's manageable. And so therapists can, you know, can sort of model that with their couples. And couples can get used to talking about sex early on in the relationship, which will make it easier to continue to talk about sex. Mm-hmm. That's the, the issue is that when we don't talk about sex, it becomes harder and harder to talk about sex. I think that's totally right. I think that's totally right. Yep. Another story that we have is that if we hit a bump in the road around sex, it means there's either something wrong with me or there's something wrong with you or we as a couple are doomed. And so I think that, right, that that's becomes this perfect storm where if we aren't in, in early on, maybe a couple feels like they don't need to talk about sex because it's very, there's lots of spontaneous desire. They're sort of like, you know, it feels like quote unquote, like ample frequency. And so there's really nothing to talk about because it's working. But then inevitably we know that as for sexually monogamous couples, especially desire is going to trail off a bit with familiarity and with the deepening of connection. And so then it does need to become a bit of a conscious, a bit more of a conscious practice. But what happens is when that corner turns, when we aren't having sex X number of times a week, like we used to, my story becomes the the meaning I make of that is either something's wrong with me, something's wrong with you, or more likely something's wrong with us. Like I've had clients say to me, like the relationship was fine, but then the sex went bad. You know how like when the sex goes bad, like the relationship has to be over. <laughs> no, I don't know that, but I understand why that's the belief system because we don't ever really talk about how you know sexual connection needs to be cultivated and um and talked about and and addressed just like any other aspect of relationship right it's it's one piece of a relationship mm-hmm. but just because one piece is not as strong as it was doesn't mean that the whole thing is trash mm-hmm. it means that we can we can place energy and resources and attention towards that piece and seeing like what's underneath that and and like you said Sometimes there's nothing underneath that other than the the fact that we are getting closer, spending more time with each other, we're more attached, there's more safety and security, which tends to dampen desire and arousal. Right. Right? Fire needs air. Fire needs air. Fire. <laughs> as Esther Perel would say, that's right. Fire that's needs right. air. And, and mm-hmm. I, I can see how familiarity just, you know, it's, it's not very exciting. Because you know how it's going to go. Yep. Yep. And, and, and domesticity, right? Like having, you know, then, then it becomes this whole, oftentimes like the turning points around once we start sharing space together and sharing space together, there's conversations about, you know, towels and toilet paper and, you know, dogs and whatever, babies, all this stuff that is just really like not lighting our fires. And, and so there needs to be a process of like de-rolling, right? Like I am not um, the mother of your children. I am not, you know, your husband and, and sort of like de-rolling out of those like very highly domestic roles and being able to like access different parts of ourselves in the presence of each other. Doesn't that tie into the Madonna whore complex? Yes. Right. You, it's like, oh, now I, now I'm not turned on by my partner anymore because I just see her as, uh, like the mother of my child mm-hmm. and she's just caring and, and it doesn't turn me on anymore. From what I have heard from my um, from my friends and colleagues who are older, is it, it's we we have to resolve that because it never ends. Like you know, some one of my um, male colleagues said to me recently, like it's really wild. Like at some point in your life, you are making love to a grandmother. 
right? Like that's a whole nother like kind of reorganization, right? That I am a grandfather and I'm making love to a grandmother. So we've got to get our heads around this shit, you know, like that. Yes, she is the mother of your child and she is your lover. And, and can you hold on to all of that, you know, about her? Right. These are the, this is the, the dialectics, right? Like I'm mm-hmm. both a grandfather and I make sweet love to my partner. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's right. And and letting that really confront whatever story lived in your head about sex is only for these people and only for, you know, so that's all. It's it's really, it's complicated, but it's so beautiful, right? Because we just keep getting confronted with this stuff and we have a chance then to to transform it. Well, we have a chance and not everybody takes the step, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's, that, that's what takes courage. Is am I gonna am I gonna go and look at something that I potentially don't want to look at, or am I gonna turn turn away and say, well, you know what, the sex is gone and the relationship is gone, and I'm gonna try again with somebody new? And guess what, that new person is gonna be exciting because it's gonna be new. Absolutely, yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. And you'll run into the same problems X years down the road. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, you might. Right, 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 because you're taking yourself with you. Yeah. You're taking yourself with you and, and, you know, the whole like having sex with, with the, the mother of your baby, like that is really, um, stand a finding that stands strong in the research that, you know, with the birth of a new baby, a couple's sex life really does, um, shift at least for a while. And it makes sense. So then it also is, um, a reminder just that couples need to have a lot of compassion for themselves and each other and, and trusting the big picture, right? That there's this like seasonality to our erotic desires. And so then the question might be like, if we're not, if we aren't available to each other to have these like really fun, playful, erotic escapes because we're freaking exhausted and there's a baby in our bed, how else will we um, really value like play and connection and touch and joy and reminding ourselves and each other that we are lovers? Like how else might that look? And that that's a really worthwhile question to be asking. Maybe it's meditating together. Maybe it's breathing mm. together. Maybe it's taking baths together. Yeah. Maybe it's just a lot of self-care and relaxation because that's what you need right now. And also the idea of having of making love to the mother of my child, that to me is actually pretty exciting. <laughs> it's kind of beautiful, hey? I mean, yeah. I mean, if you're into intimacy, which I am, then yeah, there's, <laughs> there's really nothing more intimate than that. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a life has been created together. Right, right. right. <sighs> I'm curious about like libido mismatch or desire discrepancy as we talk about, you know, sort of desire shifting. And I'm guessing that sometimes desire shifts at a different pace. It shifts for one, but not the other. Yeah, I mean, desire discrepancy is one of the most common presenting problems that couples have when they're, um, you know, when they're some, one of the most common sexual problems that, that couples run into, which makes 100% sense, right? Like the chances that we're both going to have the same amount of desire at the same time all the time is is just wholly unrealistic. And so then, um, so how, the way that it becomes a problem is when we make it, we do the finger pointing thing where it's like, you want sex too much, it's ridiculous, or you don't want sex enough, you know, you're frigid. Um, when we get into that blaming stance, um, that oftentimes 
has a gendered piece. Like I think if there's a heterosexual couple and he has less desire, I think that she can get very critical around right sort of notions of masculinity or can really confront um, this idea that I thought men were supposed to be, you know, wanting all the time. And so then it, be- then it becomes like this both blame and shame thing where it's like something's wrong with you because you're a man, you don't want it all the time, slash something's wrong with me because you're a man, you don't want me all the time. So what's wrong with me? So I think it can be very confronting with the stories that we attach to the desire discrepancy. And the way I write about it in the book is that every sexual problem is a couple problem. So mm-hmm. that we have to find a way to go from either the finger pointing blame or the like self-critical shame into a more interesting question, which is like, what are what are we going to do mm-hmm. together about the fact that there's a desire discrepancy? Like, you know, this is our problem. This is our challenge. This is our conversation to have. That this this is the truth. This is the data for us for now. So, how are we as a couple going to relate to the problem? It's just a very different way of entering into the conversation. I love this. And, and you could do this with any issue, any conflict, any source of friction. It's not the the problem is between us. It's that we are side by side and the problem is in, in front of both of us. Yeah. Or the issue or the conflict and, and how we're, what are we going to do about it? Mm-hmm. It just invites possibilities that we can't see when I'm either pathologizing you or I'm beating myself up. Because if I'm beating myself up, I'm going to hide, right? Like if I feel like I'm sexually broken, it does not invite me into a into a collaborative stance with you. It invites me to just go run and hide because I feel awful that I'm broken. Something's wrong with me. What happened? Um, it also creates a condition certainly for, you know, shady behavior like cheating. Right? Mm. That that um, that that becomes sort of a justification or it becomes an attempted solution. Um, so these, like this sort of it's either me or it's you stance just opens the door to at the very least shame, blame, and disconnection. And at the very most, you know, really destructive things like infidelity. Well, I think the proper term for cheating is non-consensual non-monogamy. <laughs> that's right. I love that. Yes, that's right. That's right. Because because one resolution might be consensual non-monogamy, right? That is one resolution that couples may come up with as a way of resolving a desire discrepancy. But yeah, that's a wholly different than non-consensual non-monogamy. There certainly are couples where one partner remains monogamous and the other partner has an expanded sexual boundary. And that is, Ooh. you know, if that's what works for that couple. Um, but, but, but it's, but really it is right. It's the informed consent and it's the, um, it's the, you know, the ways in which we attempt solutions. But I would, you know, I mean, and I, I don't, I'm really careful around how I talk about consensual non-monogamy because it is, um, it's a growing edge for me in terms of that whole world and supporting. But I, I, would really want people to be mindful about that the risks and benefits of that choice and because i think that to ask the questions differently around desire discrepancy you know there are there are a lot of possibilities that a couple may find comfort in before expanding the sexual boundary of their relationship i just want to be clear i do not condone 
non-consensual non-monogamy <laughs> it tends to blow shit up yeah i mean it's an option but i really feel mm-hmm. like it's maybe your last option and mm-hmm. really the kindest thing to do is probably to end the relationship if that's right. what you're if you're going to just disregard your partner's deepest deepest wishes and boundary right a boundary is like don't sleep with other people that that's totally a boundary Mm-hmm. If you're going to disregard that and violate it, then then perhaps you might want to explore just terminating the relationship and then going and doing what you want. Yep. So yep. yeah, I don't condone cheating. Just FYI. No, nobody. I'm yeah, right. Not pro cheating. I mean, cheating can be. It can open. I mean, I think a lot. I mean, I've sat with so many couples who come to me in the wake of infidelity that has been either disclosed or discovered, and some of that work is just some of the most like you know, chills down my arms, you know, sacred work that I ever had the chance to do as a couples therapist. But just because the work, the healing work can be sacred doesn't mean that it's like, let's, you know, I'm going to go do this so that we can have the sacred recovery process, you know. Not all relationships are forever. Mm-hmm. Some relationships have a, I mean, actually all relationships will end, but that's a bit existential, but <laughs> some of them have an expiry date. Yeah. That's right. Well, and we do we do a really good job in our culture of equating endings with failures, don't we? Yep. We are we are really good at shaming people for divorces and breakups and we equate them with failures when they might just really be better thought of as completions. A lot of people's relationships are going to end and that's normal. It's totally normal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's only a failure if you fail to learn anything from it. Mm. Beautiful. I agree. I agree. Like you said, you know, like uh, love is a classroom. It's also, it's a playground Mm -hmm. where we get to play and we get to learn and we get to rupture and repair Mm -hmm. and we get to fuck up and we get to try again. And sometimes we don't get to try again with the same person. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's right. But hopefully we do. Yeah. Yeah. I agree that there's not, there's no failures unless we don't learn. And there's also no... Um, wasted time. I feel like that's something I hear a lot is like, I wasted five years in this relationship. That's such a, it's just really like a self, you know, it's ultimately like a really self abandoning story, isn't it? Because it's, um, first of all, the time is gone. And second of all, we don't know what we don't know until we know it. And so there's just such a more compassionate and self-compassionate story about like when we focus on the learning, what we're grateful for, what we're going to take into the next relationship, like that, all that integration work that we really need to do after a breakup that I think can soften that really jagged story that it was a waste of time or I made a mistake or it was a failure. Rather than, a- rather than asking yourself, what did I learn from this? How can I carry it on to the next relationship? How can I do it differently? Yeah. Right. Exactly. Better. Exactly. Maybe yeah. even better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I think all future relationships should be as good as or better than the last. I saw you share that recently and it really, it really struck me. I think that's, I think that is the, it becomes the inevitable outgrowth, right? Of our willingness to look at ourselves. It's just inevitable that we are going to like a spiral staircase. We're just going to like spiral up when we're willing to view our relationships as these classrooms. Like it's just inevitable that the next relationship is going to have a level, a kind of expansiveness that's made possible by our willingness to do our work. And generally speaking, our life should be up and to the right. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. over the over the length of the life, of course there's going to be ups and downs. But if you look at, you know, if I, okay, I'll speak personally. If I look at my life, 
a year ago from from today, I'm doing much better mm-hmm. in my love life, in my career, in how I talk to myself, in my yep. self compassion, in how I deal with other people. Uh, it, it's it's almost immeasurable how better I'm doing than I was a year ago, and better than a year before that. That's beautiful. Yep. You know where I where that where that takes me is thinking about myself as a mother because I have times where I think, damn, I'm you know our kids are 15 and 17 right now, and I'm like, I have it all figured out. I'm such a better mom now than I was 15 years ago. Like, <laughs> let's just hit rewind and do it all again because it all makes so much more sense to me. And so that is like when you have a kid, it's like becomes this. It's a really concrete reflection of like a timeline, you know, because they are so dynamically changing. And so I can remember who I was as their mom when they were little. And I I know how much more like expansive I am on the inside now as a parent. And I just think, oh, okay, I, I I wish I could. Yeah, well, and then when I do that, I wish, then that's just a road to nowhere. And so I have to let that go. But that is, that's a, a place where I go around thinking about my own evolution, certainly. If I did again, I'd do it a little differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm going to be a kick-ass grandma. <laughs> the way you talk about, you know, your life as a mom and the way we're talking about life uh, relationships and life being expansive and up into the right and sort of a staircase going upwards, we can also apply to our sex life. Yes, we have to apply it to our sex life because otherwise we get stuck in places of shame and regret around earlier sexual experiences when maybe we need to have some of those sexual experiences in order to show us what we really want. In the Mm. book, I I call them FGOs, right? These fucking growth opportunities where it's not not a mistake. It's something to feel regretful about, but it is like, okay, that was too low a ceiling for me, right? Like I need to bust the ceiling open and figure out. There was a woman I talked to um, as I was working on the book and she talked about how in her earlier sexual experiences when she was in her early 20s, what counted for her as good sex was sex that didn't hurt and sex where her partner held her afterwards. And it was through conversations with her girlfriends, through therapy that she realized that that was far too low a ceiling, you know? And so she's really expanded what what her imaginings are of good sex. But she needs to do that expansion while not feeling shame about what she used to think and believe and imagine as possible. And she had to do that to even have a baseline. Right. She, right. she didn't know what it was until she had some experiences that didn't feel that great. And in comparison, now she knows what she wants. And it's sort of like the the woman who was trying to use the, is it um, choose, is it name choose connect? No. Cha- name connect choose. Mm-hmm. Name connect choose about, about hooking up. And, and how hooking up didn't work for her. And, and I'm someone who had a lot of promiscuous sex growing up. Mm-hmm. And it was totally fun and fine, even though I still felt a little weird after it because there were no strings attached. Mm-hmm. And for me, I've realized now, you know, as I get older, that it's actually those strings that I do want. It's emotional connection. It's romantic love. It's intimacy. That's the stuff for me that really makes sex good and fulfilling Mm -hmm. and pleasurable. But I had to go through the hooking up phase to realize that this is fun, but it's missing something. Mm -hmm. Yep. And I can't go back. That's right. No, that's right. 
What I was going to say before you gave your example is I was going to say we're going to keep having people who have to evolve until we're willing to do things like talk about pleasure and sex education or or parents, you know, being willing to talk to their kids and their teens and their young adults about um, about pleasure, right? Like you until you know that you're entitled, especially as girls and women, until you know that you're entitled to sex that feels really good for you, then it does make sense that the best a woman's going to hope for is sex that doesn't hurt her. So I feel like, right, so if everyone, if we were able to start with a level playing field where everybody was was given this really comprehensive sex education that was inclusive, that represented the kinds of bodies they live in, the kinds of desires they have, that talked about pleasure, then then somebody may have a sexual journey that has some chapters of no strings attached sex, right? That still feels really good, that still is kind of adventurous and um, helps with self awareness and self-discovery and whatever, but then they may move away from that or they may not. But it's sort of like right now, we don't even start with people having a, a, a level playing field or a fully aware playing field to begin their journeys from. Well, this book is a starting point. Mm-hmm. It's a yeah. starting point. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. I feel good about that. Yeah. And what else can people do to cultivate the kind of self-awareness required to have a good sex life with themselves first. I think one of the barriers is oftentimes feeling shame about even wanting to understand more about sex and sexuality and who they are. So that would be the first barrier because there certainly are some really beautiful resources available. I have, um, you know, at the back of the book, there are some of my favorite resources, everything from, you know, podcasts and and books to um really beautifully cult beautifully curated like feminist erotica so erotica that really shows a diverse representation of bodies and that really centers on women's pleasure and can be um really healing but none of that stuff can can happen until we feel authorized and entitled to learn about our sexuality mm. so that oftentimes that can be sometimes be the first barrier, right? Is even feeling like it's okay to be curious. Because if you've been told your whole life that sex is dirty and people who are interested in sex are like these sinful, dirty whores, then you're going to not even feel good about searching for materials that might be supportive. I like how you sort of like tiptoed around religion in the book. You're like, hey, I don't really want to get in the way. My goal isn't to get in the way between you and your beliefs, your religious beliefs. Mm-hmm. And... <laughs> <laughs> I invite you I invite you to explore some of these concepts and and take the ones that that make sense for you and leave the rest. Mm-hmm. And get mm-hmm. curious. Yeah, get curious about the relationship for you between your god and you and your sexuality and what is the quality of that relationship and what might need to be, you know, I I tell the story about a um a student of mine where we talked about like sort of a spiritual renovation, like sort of an expansion of her spiritual home, you know, that she had been raised with this one set of very religious religious and narrow beliefs that were no longer serving her because she had evolved in um, in her awareness, in her interests, in her desires, not just around sex, but just around politics and justice. And so she had to do all this expansion work and she realized that part of the expansion was around sex as well. I want to live in a world where uh, my God values pleasure Mm. and connection and intimacy because 
the the kind of intimacy that I experience in a sexual relationship, you know, in this in this relationship that I'm in right now is is like nothing I've ever felt. And mm-hmm. to me, sex can be extremely healing. Yeah. An extremely potent pathway to that sense of like oneness, right? Oneness, expansiveness, like belonging to something that is like way bigger and older than we are. It's definitely a pathway to spirituality mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it's been, it's been really mind blowing to cultivate that relationship and, and to just slow down mm-hmm. and to get curious and to explore and to stop looking at pornography and mm-hmm. to get into my body and out of my head. That's great. That's I love that you I love your willingness to share that because especially I think as a man you are you have just a chance to to model that for other men who haven't like connected those dots in that way and uh, I think you show a, you show a possibility that I don't think we're talking nearly enough about about men who really value sex as something that's deeply connecting, profoundly spiritual, like that that's a, a beautiful way to experience sex, something that you, more, so much more than what you do with your body, so much more than your orgasm. <laughs> it's my partner and I's favorite activity. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, we've been, we've been seeing each other for a while now. We've never seen a movie together. We, <laughs> like, those are, date nights are just really just lovemaking. That's great. Good yeah. for you guys. Yeah. Good for you. And it's and we learn so much. And it's it is for me, it's been deeply, deeply healing to be seen by somebody else and to just like really enter into a space of vulnerability and to be held and cared for in that space of vulnerability. And I also I recognize that not everybody has that kind of partner. Mm-hmm. Because you really have to be with somebody that's safe so that you can be vulnerable in a safe way because what happens when you when you open up you risk getting hurt. Yeah. And sometimes you get hurt and and you retreat even further back. Yeah. Boy, is that an important part, right? Because we I think that there's like a lot of interest right now in vulnerability and a lot of conversation about it which is really important, but vulnerability is contextual, right? It's contextual. It is it needs to be you know people People uh, need to earn the right to our vulnerability, to our exposure. And though it does, it can't, it's got to happen within a container. Yeah. I don't open up to, to everybody mm-hmm. and I do it slowly over time. And as I do it, I gauge the re- the response, mm-hmm. right? I'm always like looking side eye, like, oh, how, how was that? <laughs> <laughs> how, how did that response feel for me? And if it feels good, then it's like, okay, well then I can, I can go and, and dip my toe in a little bit more. And a little bit more, and and it's built slowly over time. I, that's why it's a little scary when people get really attached really quickly to relationships because they haven't really figured out whether this is a safe person or not. Mm-hmm. Right, that's right. Yep, it takes a long time to really get to know somebody. Yep, and those can be two different things. We can have the really strong feelings while deepening slowly. Like it does, you know. I think we can't we can't control. We can't control how we feel on the inside, but we certainly then can can make discerning choices about about what we do with that feeling. So the the strong feeling of attraction, desire, like a fantasy about um, you know a future together, like those those are separate and apart from what we do with them. Right? We can have the strong feeling, and we can go slowly, and we can read the feedback. Mm. You can both want to have sex with somebody and not be ready to have sex with somebody. Yeah. Yep. 
That's right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. The feeling isn't contingent upon the action, right? Mm-hmm. You can, yeah, I love that. You can both like want a future with somebody and still take it slow. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And it's going to be really uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Because it often is. <laughs> yep. Right. Because we are, you know, we act like we're these very highly evolved uh, beings, but we've got, I mean, the vast majority of our brain is this like primordial, like low brain. And so those strong feelings of lust and desire and attraction, like they can be really strong. And we do have a part of our brain that we have a prefrontal cortex that is there to say, okay, I get it. I understand that you want to jump into bed right now and we're going to go a bit slowly here. Yeah, we're going to go home tonight. We're going to go home tonight because we've walked on this path before and we know what happens. Yeah, yeah we're going to do it a little bit differently. We're going to try to do it a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That applies to, to sex. It applies to relationships, to life, to work. Right. Right. So I feel like we could just keep going forever and ever. <laughs> I also want people to, to just get the book because... There's an incredible amount of resources to help folks develop the kind of sensitivity and awareness that is required to have connection, sexual connection with themselves and with others. And if the book isn't enough, the resources at the back of the book are extremely comprehensive. Mm -hmm. I'm excited to put a lot of those those resources on my book list for this year. Mm-hmm. Yes, there's some really beautiful ones in there. Where can we find the book? And then when? where can we find you? The book is available wherever books are sold. And I, you know, I, I love when we support our independent booksellers. Uh, in fact, if I know this episode is coming out soon, but for the next 10 days until January 31st, there's, we've got partnerships with, with a number of independent booksellers around, well, around the U.S. who will be including a really sweet journal that we made um, using some original art from the book. And so if people go to dralexandrasolomon.com slash pre-order, they can use one of those links there and the bookstores involved will send a book and a journal to them. But otherwise, after January 31st, my gosh, the book will still be available and it's on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and all the indie booksellers and will be available on audio later this spring. I'm excited to get my own copy of it. Mm-hmm. And it comes out February 20th. February 2nd. Oh, Feb- mm-hmm. oh, two two twenty. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> and for people in Europe, it's still two two twenty. That's right. That's right. There's no confusion. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, did you say DrAlexanderSolomon.com? Exactly. Yes. And then on on Instagram at DrAlexanderSolomon. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Last final question. You answered this already. I'm curious if the, the answer has changed. Uh, what does love mean to you? Uh, love is... Love means is showing up. Love is showing up um, for ourselves, for our partners, and it is resisting the urge to shrink back in fear, and it's a willingness to expand. Ooh, new answer. Is it new? What did I say last time? Scott M. Peck's definition. Oh, I love that one. Oh, no, M. Scott Peck. Yeah. Yes. I kind of remember saying that, so I, maybe I wanted to do something different. I love that. showing up. I love showing up. Uh-huh. And not shrinking. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah, let's show up for our sex life. Great. Thank you so much. 
Thank you, Sean. It's fun to talk to you. Thank you for spending this hour with Dr. Alexander Solomon and myself. It really means a lot that you've decided to tune in week after week. So thanks. And I'm really excited about the Intro to Great Sex workshop, inviting intimacy back into your bedroom. For me, sex is healing. It's spiritual. It's a way of connecting with my partners. And it's important. For me, it's important. It's not for everybody. Sex is not for everybody. But if it's for you and you want more intimacy in your sex life and you want to learn practices on cultivating that intimacy and you want to get clear on what it is that you want and you want to learn the communication tools to ask for what you want and to speak up, then this workshop might be for you. Go to thelovedrive.com forward slash great sex. And for everybody else, have a beautiful week. <laughs>